This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button portion stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah, Welcome once again, everyone, to Evidence for Faith, the voice of Rashio Christie. This is the Christian Evidences and Worldview radio program where we help Christians become thinkers and thinkers become Christians. I'm Keith Kendricks. Hello, and I'm Kirk Hastings. And with us is Jessica Richardson from Stockton College. Today we're going to be talking some more about evolution. We've been doing a little bit of a series on the question of evolution. We'd also like you to check out our webpage, which is evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence and the number four, faith.com. Or if you're a Facebook user, you can find us and like us on Facebook under Evidence for Faith. Podcast listeners also, go to iTunes and put in Evidence for Faith in the search engine and you will find our podcasts. We have more than, I believe we're up past 160 of them now. So just about any topic dealing with the benefits of Christianity and the evidence that it is true. Uh, Also, one last website, check out rashiochristi.org to find out more about the main organization and its outreach to college students. Well, we always do a quote of the week, and I have a quote that I ran across. I was reading Sir Thomas More's Utopia, one of the first leftist, collectivist novels about how perfect the world would be if only everyone would agree to share all their property. Sir Thomas More was a Christian, and he wrote an interesting thing in here about reason and Christianity. So his quote is, Reason does chiefly and principally kindle in men the love and veneration of the divine majesty. So that just goes to our overarching thesis here that Christianity has historically always been a rational religion, not a blind faith religion, and it's only been the past 150 years or so that a lot of Christians have begun to adopt the atheist argument that faith is blind, and that has not been the truth in the past. Primarily Uh, probably because of the media spreading that uh, story. Yeah, well, media, books, and it's just... I think it was when initial evidence began to come out that geologists were saying, well, no, the Earth is actually much older than the Bible says. And then you had Darwin saying, oh, look, I can explain how organisms could have arrived uh, on Earth by a completely natural system. And so the Christians kind of thought, hey, we're, we're losing the argument. You know, we don't have good responses to these arguments, but we can still hang on to Christianity through our faith. And so they began to separate the heart version of faith from the head version of faith, and pretty soon you're you're left with nothing. So I think it's Stephen Meyer that says, the heart will not exalt what the mind rejects. And we are here to tell you that that is not the case. The Christian worldview, the Christian religion has always been based on logic, reason, and putting your trust in that which 
you have good reason to believe is true. Kirk, I don't know if you heard about the atheist prayer experiment. We should tell people about that in case any of our atheist listeners want to join in. This is something that was promoted by a radio show called Unbelievable from the UK. You can Google that. It's on uh, Premier Radio uh, in the UK. And what they want you to do is pray for two to three minutes a day for the next 40 days and ask God to reveal himself to you. So he's, so he's asking today, Christians to pray? Okay, so then the idea is that the atheists will give their responses after October 26 and tell what happened or did not happen uh, to them. So, Well, who's supposed to pray? Is it atheists supposed to pray or Christians supposed to pray that God will reveal himself? Yeah, atheists are supposed to pray. It's it's comes from a paper by an Oxford philosopher, Tim Mousen, titled Praying to Stop Being an Atheist. And... <laughs> Obviously, it's to the more open-minded atheists, the ones who are not completely certain. I guess that God so. <laughs> not exist. Like Richard Dawkins says, he's not completely certain that God doesn't exist. Uh, so they recommend that you not say things like, God of Christianity, if you're out there, turn this water into wine for me. <laughs> uh, but they are uh, suggesting that you pray something like, God, if you're out there, reveal yourself to me. So just a brief general but heartfelt honest prayer and we'll see what happens at the end of 40 days so they're not specifying any particular way that they want him to reveal himself yeah that's exactly right it is an experiment so the idea is to see what happens okay he's gonna report in their findings well i kind of know i think i know one response that god would give to that kind of prayer he, okay. he would probably say up front, he would say, well, I've already done that in the person of Jesus Christ. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's true. God has revealed himself in many ways. Yeah, through the Word, uh, through the, the Word, the Son, and many times spoken to us in, in uh, many ways and through Christians around us. That's true. <laughs> He'd probably say, well, I've already uh, come to earth as a man, and I've uh, had the Bible written. What else do you want? (laughs) Exactly. I think this is a really good experiment, because just in this past week, I've met two people who were atheists, and they both got to a point in their lives where they just went out for a week praying for God to reveal to them that he was real. Like, if you are there, let me know you're here, and if you're not, then I'm just going to keep living my life the way I want to. And both with both of those people, they became Christians because God revealed himself to them. Cool. Yeah, wow. very cool. That's exciting. That's exciting. Well, I'm, I'm really interested in seeing if there are a lot of atheists that take them up on this. So hopefully we'll find out about it and we'll report to you back uh, in uh, 40 days and see how it's going. Interesting. If you saw this on the Facebook page, we got a big post by uh, someone called Jared. Did you see that post that came in last night? No, I didn't. Well, it was. it's a little bit long, but it is fairly well written. I mean, there's some grammar errors, but we're not going to hold that against them. Uh, you know, a lot of times people are texting these things in on their phone. But um, it covers several topics and some of the things that we might be talking about today. So I thought I'd go through this a little bit and uh, just stop me or jump in with comments as you can. But I'll begin here. It says, Evidence for Faith, I have something to say to you. If you truly think that the world has to stand on absolutes, then you're foolish indeed. The concept that there are no absolutes ties directly into science. There's no way to know for sure, like stated in an earlier comment, 
All we believe is that outcome X is the most likely reason for experiment involving elements A, B, C, D. The truth of it is this. Anyone who denies, okay, let me, let me, uh, he starts to go into a different topic. So um, what do you think? Well, I guess uh, gravity isn't an obsolete, well, absolute. That's what I'm trying to say. That's yep. easier for you to say. <laughs> I mean, you know, isn't that one example of, of a scientific uh, absolute is gravity? And there's, there's, I'm sure there's a number of other scientific laws and stuff that um, scientists would say, well, that's pretty much absolute. Yeah, and it sounds like he's absolutely wrong because he's self-contradicting himself. Um, is he absolutely <laughs> sure that there are no absolutes? Right. Yeah, so, that's a little contradictory. Yeah. So he says then, uh, anyone who denies religion only says this. Quote, I don't know the answers, but I'm still willing to search them out and find the most effective outcome. And like said before as well, well, in case it doesn't close, quote, so, and like said before as well, all good science leaves room for doubt. Um, well, it's good. I'm glad uh, that he says he doesn't know the answers because he came to the right place. Uh, at Evidence for Faith, he's going to find the answers. So uh, he just needs to keep listening to the radio show and keep commenting on the Facebook page. There you go. He says, all good science leaves room for doubt. It leaves room for someone else to come in and say and make a change to the idea. Keep in mind that we're not saying you're right or wrong. We're saying that your beliefs don't line up with the observable facts, observable nature. Your idea of microevolution is evolution in itself. Uh, it's these micromutations that drive full evolution. So, and the topic today is evolution. So, let me just talk about this for a minute. He says that good science leaves room for doubt. And again, uh, we appreciate that and we're happy that the guy is having doubts um, because he's definitely headed down the wrong road and he needs to apply a little bit of critical thinking skills to the science that he thinks he's calling, quote unquote, observable facts. Mm -hmm. When, uh, and case in point, is this argument over micro and macro evolution. The microevolution, that is the observable facts, and that's what everyone, including creationists, agrees with. It's right. the macroevolution, which is unobservable, and anytime anybody's done experiments to prove it, those experiments have always shown that macroevolution never happens. Mm -hmm. So he says, uh, there's no such thing as the idea of an entire generation changing the whole set of information. Okay. Well, actually, he's, he's wrong there. I, I think I know what he means. I think he means that, you know, a frog doesn't give birth to a prince in one generation. Right. Well, nobody said that. We do talk about macro change, and we know that evolutionists claim that it takes a long time. We understand that. But there is actually a lot of change that goes on and complete change, too. In fact, there's an organism, a bacteria, that when it's under stress, it takes its genome <laughs> completely dices it up and then rearranges all the parts back into new chromosomes before it splits apart. So uh, it's simply not true that there aren't massive amounts of change that goes on. It's just the case that all that change is engineered already in the cell. The right. cell is designed to re-engineer itself whenever it gets into a stressful situation in hopes that the next generation can survive better on the current situation in the environment. Right. So he's just wrong there. And even that massive change doesn't change it into something other than a bacteria or whatever it started out as. That's right. And, and the reason is because 
All the information that's available to it is how to make different types of bacteria, but not how to make butterflies. Right. You don't have butterfly DNA inside a bacteria. Right. So you're not going to make that bacteria change into a butterfly. Someone has to actually add new information to the information that's already there. And where does information come from? The only source that we know from repeated experiment through all of the history of life is that information comes from intelligence. Right. And you would think people would be even more aware of that today in the, our computer age with all of the software and programs and uh, everything that we create. Of course, they're all created by in, intelligent people. That's right. And I don't know if you saw this, Kirk, and I wish I'd have saved the news item for today's show, but I'll just do it from memory. Did you know that scientists have recorded in DNA format an entire book? No. Yeah, they they did, I believe it was more than 200 pages. It had 16 illustrations, and they also <laughs> included JavaScript in with their coding, and they coded it completely in DNA code. Wow. DNA. <laughs> Is okay. that great? And what do they do with that? <laughs> uh, that was it. That was what they were trying to do. They were trying to see if you could encode an entire book into the DNA, and you could. Okay. <laughs> so it's the most compressed, it's the smallest book in the world. <laughs> uh, it's the most compressed information that exists. It might be a little hard to read. <laughs> show that the information in DNA is real information. It's just like a book or like pictures or like uh, software wow. code is a really coded information, and that is how we're built. We are built by the information that God put there. The only thing is, <clears throat> you need a really good pair of glasses to read it. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> uh, so let me continue a few minutes here with this. He says, uh, it's the little changes over millions of years to a species that, in general, that creates the evolutionary process. There is no chicken or egg in the way of stating it because it doesn't happen in one generation. It happens over many. The faster the life cycle of the generation, the greater the effects of minute changes over time. Okay, well, that's really what we're going to be getting into today because little changes over time do cause big changes. There is no doubt. I mean, imagine, let's say that you're going to change a house, okay, and you want it to change into maybe a skyscraper. So you're going to change it by throwing rocks at it, okay? Mm -hmm. Mutations. You're going to change the house bit by bit. Now, obviously, over a short period of time, just throwing rocks at a house, you're not going to get too many improvements. No. Although, let's say that maybe <laughs> it's hot inside the house and you need an open window. So you could throw a rock at the house, break one of the windows, and actually improve the situation temporarily. Mm -hmm. There is no doubt that mutational changes can cause certain improvements randomly if it just happens that 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 is what was needed to for that particular situation so in case of a, the hot the house is too hot on the inside that's an improvement okay. but how are you going to get to a skyscraper just by throwing rocks at the house now will you get more and more change the longer and longer you throw rocks at the house yes you will you get massive amounts of change over billions of years of throwing rocks at the house eventually the house will be nothing but a pile of sand <laughs> that's a big change there's no way to get from the house to the skyscraper why but that's a downward change not an upward change exactly right <laughs> that's microevolution and that's what microevolution is microevolution is always a sideways change or a downward change <laughs> 
time that it sometimes is good is when it accidentally happens to be good for the organism to lose some information. Right. If you're in a hot air balloon and you start to sink, if you throw this heavy computer out of the balloon, you will go up again. So things are better. You know, is there less information in the whole system? Yeah, there is. You just lost a computer, <laughs> but you're still better off. Or a retreating army, right? It's being beaten by a bigger <laughs> army, and it crosses a river on a bridge, and they decide, you know what? The only way to survive here is to blow this bridge up. So they blow the bridge up. Now they survive. Did they gain anything, right? Is there any new information? No. In fact, you have less. You have less complexity. You now have your one bridge short, right? But at least the organism survives. There's a flightless beetle that lives on an island north of South America, and uh, it lives there quite happily without being able to fly because it's a really windy island. All of the beetles that could fly have been blown off into the ocean and drowned. But the beetles that couldn't fly, who lost the ability to fly because of a genetic mutation, survived. So there again, loss of information equals survival benefit, and you get microevolution. In no way does that mean that that beetle is going to turn into a butterfly or into a chimpanzee. I was, I was again, just... look at uh, the antibiotic resistance of bacteria. So what happens normally is bacteria will eat the antibiotic, digest it, turns into a toxin, kills the bacteria. But if they have a mutation that destroys the enzyme that the bacteria uses to eat the antibiotic, now all of a sudden it can't eat the antibiotic. So the antibiotic doesn't turn into a toxin and doesn't kill the bacteria anymore. Voila, bacterial resistance, yet where's the new information? There is no new information. There's only loss of information. It just happens to temporarily help the bacteria to survive better, and that's natural selection. And that's what Edwin Blythe, the creationist scientist, presented long before Darwin. He didn't call it natural selection but he called it the sustaining power of nature to weed out uh, the bad variations. So, And that's what Darwin popularized. He just took that idea of Edwin Blythe and said, ah, look, we can use this to build organisms. And, of course, the truth is that you really can't because you can't gain any new information. I was just thinking, as far as that story about the, the hot air balloon, I can imagine the... Uh pilot turning to the passenger and saying, well, I've got some good news and some bad news for you. And the passenger says, what is it? And he says, the good news is that we're going up again. And the passenger says, well, what's the bad news? And the pilot replies, we just lost our guidance system. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Well, if you are just tuning in, you are listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. Richardson. And we are talking about evolution. If you'd like to join in the conversation or ask questions, you can call 609-398-1020 for those who live in the southern New Jersey area. Well, Kirk, the, the uh, Facebook post that we were reading is uh, a lot longer, but it goes on into other topics. So we'll deal with that on the Facebook page and just keep going with our uh, topic today, except we have a new segment that we're going to try to do once per week, uh, the myth busters, or uh, I don't know what we want to call it. How about myth breakers? Myth breakers. So we don't get sued by cable TV. Yeah, there you go. I like that. 
Okay, we're going we're gonna to try to do uh, break a myth every week about Christianity, because there's actually a lot of myths about Christianity out there that aren't true. So we're going to look at a few of them and see what we can do with them. And uh, I should say up front that uh, I just got a couple of new books from Amazon uh, the, the other day that I'm basing some of the information that I'm going to use in this segment on. I'd like to mention those because they're really good books. One of them is called Busted, Exposing Popular Myths About Christianity. It's by a Fred Von, if I'm pronouncing this correctly, Kameki. Uh, really interesting book. And that was published a couple of years ago, but one that was just published this year is a really good one called Exposing Myths About Christianity by Jeffrey Burton Russell. And the front cover says that it's a guide to answering 145 viral lies and legends about Christianity. Cool. And we did a a show on 10 myths about Christianity, so people can look back on the podcast or on the archive shows at the website, too, uh, if they want to see that one. Right. So what's the myth of the day then? Okay, I'm going to start out with a Bible verse. Um, You might wonder, well, what are you talking about? There's a bunch of myths about Christianity around today. Well, here's a little Bible verse uh, from 2 Timothy that kind of relates to what I'm going to be talking about here. The verse says, For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Okay, so uh, we don't have a drum roll, but anyway, here's the myth of the day. Uh, This is actually based on a news item that I saw on the internet the other day. Really interesting little story. It is called, The Evolution Debate Will Soon Be History. All right? And the article is about uh, a a scientist. His name is Richard Leakey. I'm sure that uh, some of you have heard of him. He's been around for quite a few years. Um, He's a uh, paleoanthropologist. And he's actually, uh, he's been around since the 1960s, I believe. And he's currently a professor at Stony Brook University on Long Island. But one of the things I didn't uh, realize in reading this story is he was born in Kenya, and uh, I didn't know that. And he's, he's, his life work has been searching for fossils. And uh, he's made a number of important discoveries. He's 67 years old now. He came out, uh, this is dated last May. He came out and he said that sometime in the next 15 to 30 years, um, he expects that scientific discover- discoveries will have accelerated to the point that even skeptics can accept evolution and that Christianity will fade away. Oh, okay. Okay? You got that? Yeah, he's in good company when he says uh, Christianity will fade away. That's been uh, being said for a number of years. Well, that's the myth. Like about 2000. That's the myth we're going to bust today, that uh, Christianity is going to fade away. Of course, we've we've heard that many times over the centuries from other... uh, atheists and people who have said the same thing. Of course, I'm sure that uh, a lot of people, the story that probably comes to their mind right away is the story about Voltaire, um, the French philosopher, who said the same thing. He said, you know, while he was alive, he said, oh, you know, in 20 or 30 or 50 years or whatever date he gave, he said, Christianity will fade away. It'll be gone by then. And then he passed away, and a Bible society bought his house and started printing Bibles from his house. (laughs) Yeah, using his own printing press. Oh, really? I didn't know that part. Yep. (laughs) I didn't know he had a printing press. Yep. 
Oh, that's even more ironic. Is that great? Yeah, so you can imagine he must have turned in his grave a few times after that. But anyway, um, that's our myth for the, for the day, is that Christianity will fade away. And I'm going to give you a few statistics here that may indicate otherwise. Um, one of the things that you have to keep in mind here is uh, your viewpoint on whether Christianity is um, getting stronger or weaker depends a lot on where you live in the world. Uh, according to some of the information I have here, for instance, if you live in Europe or on either of the U.S. coasts, the East Coast or the West Coast, you're more than likely to be an unbeliever today. However, if you live in Nigeria or Korea or China, Christianity is a very new and liberating idea that's exploding like wildfire. Right. As a matter of fact, um, I have some information here from the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life, where they report that sub-Saharan Africa is the world's most religious area. Up to 98% of the people in that area believe in Christianity. How about that? Wow. And, of course, uh, uh, there's a number of other places. I'm sure you've heard that uh, uh, Christianity is exploding not only in uh, Asia, but in Africa and South America. It's, it's just growing by leaps and bounds. So it really depends on where you live in the world, whether you can say something like, well, you know, there's not that many Christians around here, or there's Christians everywhere. Right. And also, your point of view regarding Christianity also depends on your age. Uh, in Western society, uh, young people's views of Christianity seem to mostly range from indifferent to negative. Um, they, uh, according to this information I have here, it says that many people born and bred in a world of designer labels regard Christianity as just another brand name, along with Buddhism, New Age, humanism, etc., etc. So that's pretty interesting. Absolutely. Jess, any comments on that? No, I think that's extremely true. I think especially in our generation, people are just, like you said, very indifferent to Christianity or extremely negative towards it based on just stuff in the media and the fact that a lot of them just think that it's restricting and they don't like it, so they don't want it and they don't have to believe it. But with older people, they're just astonished if, say, you're talking to someone in their 70s, they're shocked if another one of their, you know, people their age thinks that Christianity is wrong. It's unheard of for people that are older. Right. And, of course, like I said earlier, I think our, our modern media has a lot to do with uh, young people kind of being apathetic about Christianity because the media, uh, a lot of media people are atheists and agnostics, and you constantly get this message from the movies and the TV shows and whatever that they produce that Christianity has either been proven to be untrue or it's totally unimportant. And young people hear that, and they just accept it without checking it out. That's extremely true. I think that, you know, I've heard a lot about people in Hollywood who are Christians and are afraid to stand up and talk about the fact that they're Christian because they think that they'll be left out of movies and TV shows or they'll lose their, you know, reporting job right. because then they might have a slanted view because they'll have a Christian worldview as opposed to having an atheist worldview, which isn't slanted at all, right. you know, but I think that that's very true. And we're getting information from people that we consider to be reliable and not realizing that they're atheists or agnostics and they're going to give us their view of, of so-called facts instead of really just presenting us with information and letting us figure things out on our own. 
Right. Well, in a perfect world, that's what would happen. We would get both sides of the issue, and they would allow us to make up our own minds. But unfortunately, uh, in most cases, that doesn't seem to be the case. But anyway, uh, some other interesting statistics I have here. Uh, Interesting that a 2008 survey uh, of – this is in the United States, this survey was taken. It shows that 92% of the population do believe in some kind of universal spirit. Okay, now that covers a lot of different religions, granted. Uh, It also says 74% believe in life after death and 79% believe in contemporary miracles. How about that? Yeah. And that's in this country. It is shocking. Yeah, the the problem with a guy who makes a a, a statement like that is probably all his friends are atheists. (laughs) So, you know, he just doesn't know people who are believers and so he thinks that it's a very tiny minority and it's going to die out. Right. Well, yeah, that's that's part of, you know, where you live uh, can uh, affect your outlook on religion and Christianity, because if you live in, like, New York City or San Francisco or Los Angeles, you're going to think, oh, nobody believes in Christianity anymore. I don't know anybody that believes in that. Right. But, of course, if you live in the Midwest, they, you might find a few more people that believe in it. <laughs> Okay, um, some other interesting statistics. It says here, a recent Gallup poll of U.S. residents also asked respondents whether religion was an important part of their daily life. Now, how many, what percentage do you think answered in the affirmative there? 35% maybe on a good day. Uh, Better than that. Wow. 65% said that religion was important to them. Very good. That's... I would have hoped it would be a little higher than that, but actually 65% today is probably pretty good. (laughs) I mean, that right there just shows the whole difference in age that you would think it would be higher, and I would think that it would be much lower. Right. Well, you're you're a college student, right? Yeah, so I mean, that just shows you what it's like being on campus, that you feel that the majority of people don't believe in religion or think that religion's bad instead of good. That's exactly what I was going to ask you, is what kind of a feeling do you get from other college students? And you kind of just answered that. Yeah, exactly. It's, there's definitely a negativity about if you believe in any kind of religion, that's just a negative thing, and it's just used to oppress other people, so you shouldn't be religious. It, it's kind of become stylish to to not believe in religion, hasn't it, on the oh, campus? Oh, completely. I definitely agree with that. Yeah, you're not cool if, you be, if you're religious. Yes. You get a lot of heat on campus, that's for sure. Yeah, that's a shame. Uh, here's another interesting statistic, though. It says here that the total number of Christians in the world, of course, when you count places like Africa, South America, Asia, is increasing rapidly, and there may be as many as 100 million what they call crypto-Christians, which is Christians that don't dare to declare their belief because of fear of persecution. Now, mm. especially if you're living in like an Arab country or something like that, right. if you're a Christian, you're not going to tell anybody that. <laughs> right. And, you know, China uh, persecutes religious right. people a lot, although I understand that there's a, a huge amount of Christians in China. It's growing um, extremely fast, but most of them are like underground church, uh, right. underground home type um, churches. Right, that's what I've heard. Yeah, because the government, you know, really doesn't, isn't real crazy about the idea. And if you, uh, the the little bit of what you would call organized religion that is in China is very highly regulated by the government. And if you don't do everything exactly the way they say they want you to do it, then you got a problem. (laughs) Yeah, and they will, they do come after people. I've, I've heard about 
they track down underground churches by um, they will arrest people and actually drug them until until they confess all the names of the people they know. Yeah. And then they will right. go and arrest those people and drug them and get more names until they can arrest the entire church that way. Yeah. In particular, they look for the pastors. And then once they get the pastor, then he just stays in jail. Doesn't yeah, that's this? really scary. But I also think at the same time, there's some hope there because I've heard in the past six months, even just in places like China, that there's all these home churches that are growing and a serious need for Bibles. It reminds me a lot of the New Testament where people are sharing whatever pieces of scripture they can get on a piece of paper and passing it around towns. You have a lot of that going on there and people are very strong in their faith be really cool to see something, you know, that kind of faith over here, minus that kind of persecution. Yeah, doesn't that really sound a lot like what happened in, in the Roman Empire when Christianity first started? They were. Yeah, it's interesting to see how history repeats itself. Yeah, because the Christians were really persecuted back then, and they just, it exploded like wildfire until finally um, it became the official religion of the empire. Yeah. Wouldn't it be interesting to uh, see something like that happen in China? <laughs> Well, let's, uh, let's remind people that if you're just tuning in, you are listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And I'm Jessica Richardson. Okay. And so- we are talking about evolution, or we're going to go back to talking about evolution now. That was a great segment, okay. Kirk. All right. So what we thought we'd do, Jess is learning about evolution and trying to see what the arguments are on both sides. So we decided to let her go at us, Kirk, here with questions. <laughs> oh so boy. she's going to pepper us with questions until we're so befuddled that we will uh, bow to the evolution dogma and become atheists. What do you think? She's going to be the salt of the earth and pepper us with questions, right? That's right. <laughs> and it's going to be questions not just from me, but from friends that I have that... Um, agree with evolution or think they agree with evolution. Okay. And I say think because my questions about evolution to them have, I've noticed that there's um, a lack of education about macroevolution and microevolution. Surprise, surprise. Yeah, Yeah. they just seem to think that evolution is um, microevolution and that covers it all and that's what their professors are really talking about when it, it clearly isn't. That's right. Um, and I am, I'm 25 and I'm just learning about evolution because in high school we weren't really taught about it. And I went to a public school where it was just, and then we evolved from monkeys. And that was literally <laughs> the extent of our evolution. If it lasted like a five minute conversation about it, that was what we were taught. Then why are there then still monkeys? college and it's very, very different. <laughs> so, um, but even within college, I think there's a lack of understanding of what evolution is. So I'm hoping you guys will be able to answer some of my questions. Well, you're rapidly eating up your time. You um, have 20 okay. minutes, but now you only have 15. All right, my question. Um, first, starting off with micro and macro evolution for the people that are listening from our college that don't really know the difference. Could you guys maybe break down simply what the difference between micro and macro is and how evolution that, you know, evolution on a micro level makes sense to Christians also, but on a, mic- a macro level, it doesn't. If you guys could just kind of distinguish between those two terms, maybe. Kirk, you want to jump in there? Because I talked about that a little bit with the Facebook page. Okay. Well, actually, I could address that really simply and say that microevolution refers to changes within a species. And macroevolution is the theory, the unproven theory, that one species can change into another species. That's basically the difference. Yeah. And the the thing that we want to focus on is that... The microevolution everybody agrees with, right? Yes. And that's where the evidence is. That's so adaptability. Everything you see that supports 
evolution, all the peppered moth and the bacterial resistance and on and on, all those evidences, those are all microevolution. Those are all examples of microevolution. Right. So what you don't see is any evidence for macroevolution. You see claims of evidence for macroevolution. For instance, the fossil record is supposed to be evidence of macroevolution. But again, there's nothing, even as, as much experimentation has been done on rapidly breeding organisms like bacteria or fruit flies, mice, there's never been anybody able to produce new information. And that's the thing we have to focus on, it's the information. Where does the information to make uh, organs, new organs, come from. If you're going to get from a, uh, a mammal living on the land to the whale, a mammal living in the ocean, you need new organs like right. specialized lungs that can breathe uh, underwater for long periods of time, sonar to be able to detect things, eyes that can withstand the water and the pressure. Yep. So all of that takes brand new information that isn't present in a you know, uh, land-based animal. Where's that information come from? Right. You need fins instead of legs and arms. So you can say that it came, and you can take a bunch of different fossils from different time periods and different parts of the Earth and kind of line them up and say, okay, uh, these go in this order, uh, and you can see how the gradual change occurred. But the problem is we still don't know where the information came from. Even if, let's say that that is what happened, let's say that that did happen and it did take 10 million years and you did get this land animal changing into uh, a, a sea animal, where did the information come from? Right. You have to have, at some point, whether it's theistic evolution, you, you still have to have a, a mind, an intelligence providing the information. Right. Well, that it? You're out of questions? No, no, I have more questions, actually. <laughs> talking about what you were saying um, with the minds and, you know, new information. I was talking to someone who said that they believed that we did come from monkeys because of the fact of, like, the bottom of our spine. There's right there where your, you know, your tail would have been if you were a monkey. So how do we explain that? Like, there's different organisms or different organs that we no longer use that would have been used in other animals if we had come from them. Right. So how do you say that... We didn't come from monkeys. If through microevolution we could have just decided as we were evolving that we no longer needed certain things and so we didn't have them anymore. Right. Okay, so those are called vestigial organs, right, which means they're no longer used. They don't have a, a function. They're just kind of there. Kirk, you want to jump in on that or you want me to? Well, I could uh, comment that um, uh, there's actually – it's kind of more a, a complex uh, subject than most people think. Most people think, oh, well, you know, there's a little projection at the bottom of our spine, and we call that our tailbone. And people say, okay, well, um, it's not too much of a stretch to imagine that at one point that was an actual tail, and it just shrunk until now it's just a little nub at the bottom of our spine. But the only problem with that is that's all speculation, you know, right. you're guessing and saying, well, this looks similar to a monkey's tail, so therefore at one time it was a monkey's tail. But that's really um, conjecture. It's not scientific proof. 
And the, the problem is that it's also not vestigial, meaning that it does have a purpose. Yes, it does. It's not just there left over with no purpose. It actually has a purpose. It's for the attachment of muscles that hold up the pelvic floor. Right. Without your tailbone, you have a lot of problems. You, don't, you have muscles that need to attach there. Right. Um, you have the bottom of the pelvic floor. So without that, you would have big problems and people who have... Anybody who's ever broken their coccyx knows uh, how important that little tailbone is. It's very important. <laughs> yep. So but it, um, it's interesting. So aside, uh, you know, rather than it being some vestigial leftover, it's actually very necessary to the design of human beings. It's actually, uh, according to a lot of scientists and even evolutionary scientists, though, it is not purely scientific to simply say, well, just because this organ or bone or whatever in this one creature looks kind of like this bone or organ in another creature, that that necessarily means the two creatures are related. Yeah. Scientifically, yeah, it doesn't right. mean that necessarily. Yeah, that's right. In fact, uh, studies that they've done with DNA comparisons, looking at uh, organisms that they thought were related on a phylogenic tree, just based on morphology, they thought, okay, well, the DNA is going to match up. When, in fact, it, it, it doesn't happen. The right. DNA doesn't match up, and the right. DNA is actually closer to other organisms that show no similarity in structure. So, right. um, you know, that's another additional evidence against evolution. But just to stick with this vestigial organ idea, this, I think, shows how atheistic ideas and evolution has been such a science stopper over the centuries. Since Darwin, the science has been stopped in many ways. One of them is with this idea of the vestigial organ. Because an organ, according to the scientist, doesn't have a purpose, then why would he ever investigate it and see what purpose it really has? Mm -hmm. in, in the old days, neurosurgeons used to lop off the uh, penile gland because they thought it was a vestigial organ. So, uh, you know, and then people have severe diseases uh, as a result. Uh, even things like the appendix. And the appendix was one of the vestigial organs that um, was the most recently discovered what the purpose of it is. Right. Now we know that it has a function. It's very necessary. Can you live without it? Yes, you can. But you're more healthy if you have an appendix. Right. So. Yep. Did you not know that? No, I honestly didn't See, know that. That's another thing that I get a lot is, you know, your, your tailbone, well, the appendix, that must yeah. have been used for something else when we were, you know, back when we were apes and now we just don't need it anymore. So I was actually right. going to ask you about the appendix. Like, does it actually serve a purpose now? Did yep. it never serve a purpose? How do, how do we know about any of that? It's right. part of the that's immune system. Through, well, that's the, the, the problem. I'm sorry to stomp on you, Kirk. There, go ahead. It's part of the immune system. That's right. Wow. So it actually stores the friendly bacteria so that in case you have a food poisoning event where the bacteria in your gut is uh, killed, uh, the appendix will store a sample of the good bacteria so that when you recover, it can repopulate and you don't die because you actually need those bacteria to survive. Right. Now, why did it take so long for scientists to be able to determine what the purpose of the appendix was? Because they believed in evolution, and evolution is a science stopper. It prevents you from looking at the design of human beings and organisms that were designed by an intelligence for a purpose. Hmm. So, you know, you know, just another knock against uh, evolution. Yeah. 
Wow. Okay. I just learned try a, a harder lot. question. <laughs> a harder question. Okay. Um, I was reading a book recently. The author, I can't even remember his name, but was talking about how he went through Genesis, the first seven days of Genesis, and how Genesis actually supports the idea of evolution. That like God made you know birds first and this and that first before He made humans. Do you guys see that? Do you think that evolution is supported by Genesis going through it in the order of things? You're up first. That's strange because I've heard a number of stories recently where atheists will go to that same passage of Scripture and they'll say, look, this proves um, that creation is a ridiculous myth because God created these things all out of order. He created plants before he created the sun to keep them alive, and he did this out of order, and he did that out of order. And they say that uh, that, that passage proves that Genesis is nothing but a myth because that passage doesn't make any sense. Yeah, see, that's what I've heard more often than this. But now it seems to be like on the Internet and books that I've been reading and going through have been saying that that actually makes sense, that going through Genesis supports their idea of evolution. I don't know if it's like an attempt to get Christians to get on board with evolution because now they're using our scriptures to support their theory or if it's just a total farce, basically. Yeah. Well, actually, here's what I think. There, there are three basic views. Uh, you've got young earth creationism, which says that the uh, first books of Genesis are uh, to be taken more historically, uh, that they are uh, accurate in their time frame. Uh, then you have old earth creationists, which agree with the geological record, and they think that instead of the strata being the results of Noah's flood, they think that those were laid o- down over long periods of time. And Creationists who believe in long ages but are still disagree with evolution, um, they're called progressive uh, creationists or they're sometimes called the framework model. And in this view, God does various creation acts at certain times. So the six days of creation might have actually taken 24 hours each, but they were not consecutive. So you had, you know, and then what they'll do is they'll look at that scripture from a from Earth's point of view. And so they'll say that light appeared when the uh, mists of the Earth cleared enough for an observer on the surface of the Earth to see the light and then to see the sun and the stars. So that's why the sun and the stars come later, they explain. Um, and then you have the third view, which is theistic evolution, which is that the whole long ages and evolution also is all true, but God just gave the upward momentum to evolution and the push to create everything. So so that's what you might have been seeing. You might have been seeing some uh, work by theistic evolutionists who, are, who are believe in evolution, believe in the old earth ages, but simply say that God did it. So That's an interesting perspective. Yeah. That's not something yeah. I've heard commonly, I guess. And yep. then no, my, it's very common, actually. It is? Is yeah, it becoming more common. popular, or is it... No, in fact, I think it's, well, uh, it's difficult to say whether it... Um, you get basically the other two sides are both beat up on the theistic evolutionists, because for one thing, uh, atheists will say, well, th- then you don't really believe in evolution, because bl- evolution is unguided, right? And you'll notice that in their definitions, they always add the words unguided. Mm-hmm. So if you can't be a designer. Exactly. If okay. you're a theistic evolutionist, you say, okay, well, evolution is true, but God guided it. So it's a little like this. I heard the explanation. I think Greg Kokel uses this on his radio show. He says, if I explain to you about how water boils, 
and I tell you about how the, you know, as the temperature rises, you put a flame under a pot of water, and as the temperature rises, the the molecules bump into each other more until finally get to the um, the point where it's about to boil. And then if you throw in a leprechaun, it will boil. <laughs> and then the, this person says, well, what happens, what happens if you don't throw the leprechaun in? <laughs> and the guy says, well, it'll still boil. <laughs> So, the, so that's kind of the his explanation of this theistic evolution. What happens if God didn't do anything? Oh, well, you'd still get human beings, right? Because that's the way evolution works. The tricky part of that story is getting a hold of that little bugger leprechaun. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. So, um, so the theistic evolutionists, even though it sounds like, oh, this is a solution. This is kind of a middle of the road. This is a way I can get past the two ex- extremes, you actually get beat up on all sides. You get to have um, your cake and eat it, too. <laughs> that's right. That's right. You can't, you can't say that evolution did everything, um, but then you say, yeah, but God did it. Right. That's like throwing the leprechaun in to make the water <laughs> boil. That makes sense. That's funny. <laughs> now, also, just um, I guess a, seg- a segment with the fossil thing is that a lot of people say that we know that evolution happened because there's fossils that show us that. Has there been anything that's really proven that? Or is it kind of like we made up an equation to support something that we see now and we're trying to apply that equation to fossils that we found to like meet a timeline? Well, one minute, Kirk. Um, my understanding of that is the way I look at it is it's all speculation and conjecture. You know, they look at these bones and they think, well, okay, look, this, this was, um, an intermediate form between this and this because they look similar. And we found this one below this one. Therefore, this one must be an ancestor of what's above it. And, you know, all this stuff sounds really good until you realize, well, there's no actual scientific proof to prove any of this. This is just your imagination working up a story here that sounds good, but there's no proof for it. That's right. It's kind of like throwing in the leprechaun. Right. (laughs) Well, uh, you've been listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And I'm Jessica Richardson. Uh, We are a ministry of Ratio Christi. Uh, Send your comments or questions to email at evidenceforfaith. That's evidence4faith.com. And please join us again next week for more reasons to believe. And always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true.